Well, we are in the, uh, the chapter about the definition part of the Satipatthana Sutta, and we just got onto the uh, part about uh, Sampajana, which means clearly knowing. Clearly knowing, apart from being listed in the definition part of the Satipatthana Sutta, is mentioned again under the first Satipatthana, our mindfulness of the body, with regard to a set of bodily activities. That's to say, when going forward and returning, he acts clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, he acts clearly knowing, and so on and so forth. Expositions of the gradual path of training usually refer to such clear knowing in regard to bodily activities with the compound sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear knowledge. Also, uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension, or uh, Lumpur Sumato's term uh, intuitive awareness is his... Uh, rendering of uh, Sati Sampajanya. On further perusing the discourses, one finds that this, this combination of mindfulness with clear knowledge, clear knowing, is employed in a wide variety of contexts, paralleling, paralleling the above documented flexible usage of clearly knowing on its own. The Buddha, for instance, taught his disciples, went to sleep, endured an illness, relinquished the life principle, and prepared for death, each time endowed with mindfulness and clear knowledge. So that uh, in each of those um, say, um, instances, then it was described that he did uh, uh, took those actions, he did those things with uh, uh, that kind of uh, clear knowledge. So when teaching, uh, going, uh, going to sleep, uh, dealing with an illness, or, or giving up the life principle at the end of his life, uh, was, uh, that was all done, all of those different times it was mentioned as being with clear knowledge, with that same <coughs> Sampajana. Even in his previous life he was already in possession of mindfulness and clear knowledge when he arose in heaven, stayed there, passed away from there, and entered his mother's womb. Mindfulness and clear knowledge also contribute uh, towards improving one's ethical conduct and overcoming sensuality. In the context of meditation, mindfulness and clear knowledge can refer to contemplating feelings and thoughts. They can mark a high level of equanimity in the context of perceptual training, or they can take part in overcoming sloth and torpor. Mindfulness and clear, know clear knowledge become particularly prominent during the third meditative absorption, third jhana, where the presence of both is required to avoid a relapse into the intense joy, piti, experienced during the second absorption. So uh, again, it's, um, he's sort of very briefly quoting different instances from the, the scriptures where uh, mindfulness and clear knowing are particularly named as uh, being part of the contemplation of feelings and thoughts, or um, the development of equanimity, uh, or, or, they, uh, um, or in dealing with uh, sloth and torpor, tinamita. This broad variety of occurrences demonstrates that the combination of mindfulness with clear knowledge is often used in a general manner to refer to awareness and knowledge without being restricted to its specific use as clearly knowing bodily activities in the gradual path scheme or in the Satipatthana context of body contemplation. So he's saying that the term is used in a much, much broader and loose way. Such cooperation of mindfulness with clear knowledge, which according to the definition, is required for all Satipatthana contemplations, points to the need to combine mindful observation of a phenomena with an intelligent processing of the observed data. 
Thus, to clearly know, quote-unquote, can be taken to represent the illuminating or awakening aspect of contemplation. Understood in this way, clear knowledge has the task of processing the input gathered by mindful observation and thereby leads to the arising of wisdom. Uh, so I'll read a, um, a few passages from Ajahn Chah's teachings that, that also uh, clarify this, but um, that uh, uh, I think he phrases it very well here, saying that um, to clearly know can be taken to represent the illuminating or awakening aspect of contemplation. Clear knowledge has the task of processing the input gathered by mindful observation and thereby leads to the arising of wisdom. So a way that I like to speak about that um, it's like, uh, is that uh, where mindfulness is aware of a particular action, uh, uh, say the, the, the words that I'm choosing to speak or the consciousness of, of this occasion, the um, Sampajanya is being aware of uh, not just the, the particular object of, in, of attention or action, but it's the context within which that is appearing. So it's only just gone five past six. The time for the reading is, is just underway. We've got lots of time to play with. Uh, people seem to be quite alert and paying attention. I haven't lost too many people yet uh, <laughs> in terms of the, the drift. And so that, that Sampajanya is that sense of the time, the place, the context uh, for, what, for what you're doing. And so that uh, it, it's a... Um, in a way, giving the background or the, the other uh, elements that play into the experience of, of the present moment. And uh, then, as it says, understood in this way, clear knowledge has the task of processing the input gathered by mindful observation and thereby leads to the arising of wisdom. So that uh, <clears throat> these three, Sati, Sati Sambhajanya and Panya, uh, they sort of work together. And again, in several of the readings from Ajahn Chah that I'll... Um, share with you, he sort of speaks about them as a, as a triad, sati, sampajanya and panya, mindfulness, clear comprehension and, and wisdom. And then, so that if, if mindfulness is, say, bringing the attention to a particular object in the present moment, paying attention to that, uh, sampajanya is a, a feeling for the context within which that object is being experienced, then wisdom is, uh, in a sense, bringing it even closer to home, so that... Uh, the um, uh, in this moment we can say we're sitting here in the sala. It's uh, eight minutes past six in the evening. Um, it's a it's a Sunday, and uh, <coughs> we're we're gathered together um, to reflect on the teachings. But it's also the fact that this is sound that we're hearing. There's uh, the feeling that the weight of the body on the cushion or the chair, the um, the feeling of your clothes on your skin, the different uh, passing thoughts. Uh, if I'm if I'm speaking too quickly or English isn't your first language, then maybe your your thought is thinking, oh, what was that word he used? I'm not quite sure what that means. And then comparing it to a word in your own language, background thoughts. <clears throat> so that uh, all of that is sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thinking, memory, uh, arising and passing away. So that the, the panya aspect is that, in a way, it's the phenomenological to use a word that is probably not familiar to everyone, <laughs> the phenomenological experience, uh, uh, processing of experience. So that, what that means is to recognize that the, uh, this, is, uh, this uh, experience, this present moment, is woven together from what is heard, seen, smelt, tasted, touched, remembered, thought, imagined. And uh, the, in this moment, you're not experiencing the world, you're experiencing your mind's representation of the world. 
I close my eyes, you disappear. I stop speaking. The uh, the the world changes again. So we we are um, experiencing the way that our mind puts together a picture of of the world and represents it uh, in ways that uh, uh, we can hopefully understand and, and make sense. So that the the panya aspect is is that um, they're looking at the 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 nature of experiencing, the nature of experience and how. When the mind sees uh, sees things clearly in that way, that there's hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, there's a, a natural letting go of the sense of there's me who's seeing, me who's thinking, me who's understanding, me who's not understanding, me who's feeling the the, the weight of the body, or or me who's uh, experiencing this particular mood or, or this um, tone of, of consciousness, but rather. There's uh, simply the, the flow of these different patterns of, of nature that are rising and passing away. So that there's a, a spaciousness, uh, a, a, a quality of non-entanglement, a non-identification. Though in, in classical Buddhist terminology we call this insight or vipassana, is that very seeing of the, the nature of experience without... Uh, uh, coating it with a, a layer of identification or or judgment. Uh, I like I approve of this. I disapprove of that. It should be this way. It shouldn't be that way. And this is mine. That's yours. This is inside. That's outside. Though those judgments of inside, outside, uh, uh, good, bad, beautiful, ugly, mine, yours are seen as being sort of conventional designations. They are the samuti sacha or conventional truths. Like today, t- today is Sunday. That's uh, completely based on a human agreement of uh, the the planet spinning around. It's been the planet's been here for four billion years. <laughs> there was a lot of time that Sundays didn't exist. <laughs> you know, the planet was spinning, but there weren't. Uh, there was no language to say this is a Sunday. There was no um, human agreements to to come up with a particular division of the the passage of days and nights into groups of seven days. You know, the the seven day week is a bit of a European invention in modern times that the before that was conjured up then everything was done by the moon and so the uh, the naming of our experiences the the let's say the the forming of uh, inside outside good bad I, I like i don't like so in, in with insight with vipassana there's a recognition of that uh, what you can call a dependent nature of those perceptions, the, the dependent and uh, unsatisfactory, em- kind of basically the empty, uh, the transparent quality of those experiences. And with seeing that transparency, there's a, a letting go, there's an inner spaciousness, there's a, a freedom. Uh, the Buddha uses this word, yatabhutang jnanadasanang, the knowledge and vision of the way things are, there's a, <clears throat> which you can render a bit more uh, kind of simply as the, oh, the aha moment of, oh, right, of course, that's just a thought. It doesn't have to be called my thought, or this is just a feeling. I don't have to say it's me feeling, or this is just a memory. It doesn't have to be me remembering. Aha, look at that. And so then the, uh, the, the consequent quality of, of ease or freedom or, or um, peacefulness, clarity that comes from that, that seeing, that aha, that yatabhutang yana dasanang 
that is what we we call you know, liberation, or, uh, the um, vimuti, or the, the natural result of that kind of clear seeing. So these these three terms, sati, sampajanya, and panya, mindfulness, clear comprehension, and wisdom, they they're representing these sort of different qualities of attention, and the uh, and also the if you like the increasing element of of wisdom or clear seeing and understanding, and the increasing a quality of, of uh, non-attachment and non-entanglement within that. Now, these qualities of clear knowledge and mindfulness thus remind one of the development of knowledge and vision of reality, according to the Buddha, to both know and see are necessary conditions for the realization of Nibbāna. It might not be too far-fetched to relate such growth of knowledge, jnana, to the quality of clear knowing, sampajana, and the accompanying aspect of vision, dasana, to the activity of watching represented by mindfulness. More remains to be said about this quality of clear knowledge. In order to do this, however, some additional ground has to be covered, such as examining in more detail the implications of sati, which I will do in chapter 3. So in that last little sentence, he's sort of drawing together the, na the quality of... Um, uh, sati, mindfulness and clear knowing, together with, with that, that uh, term I just uh, mentioned, yatabhutang nyanadasanam, and sort of lining those up uh, uh, and comparing those with each other. Oh, so before I go on with any, any of the readings from uh, Lumpo Cha, any questions or uh, observations, reflections, things that would be useful to clarify? Don't be shy, these readings are for you, they're not for me. Yes, Venerable. This one was the Sampajanda always on conventional level, and the Panya on the ultimate level, on no self level. I think it's a, so on the experiential level, it's a bit of a spectrum. So there's, um, so the, the Sampajanya, um, it's not like there's a suddenly there's a, there's a line where the sampajanya stops and the panya begins. In a way, like the way Ajahn Chah talks about it is like these three qualities support each other, so that um, if <coughs> um, uh, if we just uh, uh, look at sampajanya in a in a very sort of straightforward way, there can be a sense of the time and the place, the situation, but there can still be a very solid sense of me talking to you, and it is actually Sunday, <laughs> and that that, uh, that the, the the wisdom element is not particularly strong. Um, so there there can be at that end of the spectrum, there can be quite um, sort of uh, precise and and well well established sampajanya. But without much of a reflective element in there, there without that, that, the insight into to not self or into into dukkha being clearly established. Similarly, the, the word panya uh, it has a, it also has a spectrum of meaning. So it can mean this sort of transcendent wisdom, like the the, the wisdom of, of sort of a full uh, full knowing and sort of complete you know, understanding. In the most profound way, or it can, at the other end of the spectrum, just mean intelligence. So often, in the the ten paramitas, the, the ten perfections, when the the quality of panya is spoken about, 
it's, uh, it's more often talked about just as the quality of intelligence rather than being a transcendent uh, understanding at all. So uh, <coughs> it's uh, I'd say that the, the panya element does have more of that sort of reflective and transcendent aspect to it, but it's not uh, it's not like a, a one or a zero. It's not like switched on or switched off. But there's there's degrees of that. And similarly with with the sampajanya, with that uh, clear comprehension, there can be the, the the degree to which the attention is uh, sort of broadened, and there's a a, a a perception of the the time, the place, the situation, the the context, um, and that can have in varying degrees of of uh, say um, entanglement or, or non-entanglement. Uh, they can, you can be uh, in that. There could be a very strong emotion, for example, like that you're very angry about something, you're very excited about something, so that you're, you're there's a, an awareness of oh, you know, the mind's really excited or really frightened or, or upset, um, and that so they can, there can be a, a clear awareness of that, but still the you know an emotional investment in it. So it's 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 always to me in my in my experience or the way it seems to me in, in terms of practice is that there's it's it's not a, a sort of wholly one thing or another there's a it's a question of degrees so there's like a spectrum of of clarity as you go along that's just my my experience of it I mean there's a certain um, in a way the the, the <coughs> The the moment of insight, or the, 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 the having said that, it's a you know as a spectrum. There's also it's not uncommon to have that experience of oh, this is just the mind being upset. Aha! <laughs> and in that moment, to see oh look, it's just the mind being upset. In that moment, it can be that then the the, the entanglement actually the, the, the still the the feeling of agitation or, or the emotion is there, but the the uh, there is a a, a degree of um, of non-identification, that something has to let go, something is is not caught up in the same way. So, it's <clears throat> there can be those very uh, sort of clear. Oh, you know, now <laughs> the light was off, and now the light's on, <laughs> and uh, so that it it's not always just like a, a like a fading quality, but there can be those uh, just uh, clear shifts of of view where. Suddenly, it's uh, it's seen in a different way. So I thought I'd read a few passages since we're also coming up to Lumpo Cha's uh, death anniversary, sixteenth of. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, just one with the. This is uh, couplet Uh, well, the, the, I'm most uh, familiar with uh, Lumpo Sumedho's way of speaking about these things. So, whereas the uh, the quality of bhavatanna is the desire to to become something, the desire to um, to to get somewhere, 
which can be a very coarse kind of ambition, um, uh, but also it can be just that sense of me trying to uh, to practice the Dhamma, <laughs> me trying to uh, develop uh, concentration, that, or just me me being the meditator, me being the practitioner. So it can be quite coarse, or it can be quite subtle. So the desire to become. And uh, and then its partner vibhavatana is the desire to not be or to to get rid of. So it can be like I wish my uh, chattering mind would just shut up, and I you know, wish these these stray thoughts would just be quiet. And, or I, so it can be quite specific in that way. It can also be quite subtle in just that sense of I've had enough of this. I just want to just want to switch off. So a lot of the, the difficulties with dullness in meditation, tinamita, as he was mentioning, the dullness is vibhavatana, it's just the, the mind is not wanting to bother with experience. It's, I don't want to deal with this uncomfortable feeling in the body or these um, uh, irritating thoughts or there's nothing special going on, I'll just switch off. So it's a, it's a desire to not feel, to not be, to forget, to disengage, like, I'm out of here, I've had enough of this, or like, oh, nothing's going on, I'll just... And it's usually not a deliberate thought, like, nothing's going on here, I'll just switch off. It's just a sort of a drift into that. So that uh, <clears throat> it's a kind of numbing uh, quality as well. So. Uh, so Lumpur Sumedha would often use that, that phraseology, the desire to get rid of, or the desire to annihilate. Um, and so they, are, in meditation, those two are very uh, active. <laughs> because it's it, it, one of the, the themes that I, I've been talking about just on this retreat a, a bit is how when we're trying to apply effort in meditation, it very easily gets co-opted by bhavatana vibhavatana, the desire to 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 be a good practitioner, the desire to <laughs> to uh, develop the the meditation, to to be a good monk, to be a good nun, to to um, uh, to get rid of your stray emotions, to to make your uh, the mind that wants to go off into fantasies to shut up and be quiet and concentrate, and so. Even when you you read the instructions in a book or you hear a dhamma talk, you can say, well, yeah, it's, it talks about getting rid of distracting thoughts. It talks about getting rid of greed and hatred. It talks about yes, getting samadhi and and uh, getting uh, jhana and insight. And so it can see now, well, aren't I following the instructions? Isn't this aren't I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? But what's happening is that that. Uh, rather than it being samavayamo, right effort, or attuned effort, which is attuned with Dhamma, it's become taken over by the habits of self-view. I need to practice, I want to be a good meditator, I, I, I need to work on my mind, I need to get rid of my greed, hatred and delusion. And so unconsciously we're creating this idea, I'm a person who's got a lot of greed and hatred, delusion, I need to get rid of it so I can develop a path and become an arahant. Uh, and it looks like you're following the instructions. You know, so hang on a minute, I'm doing. I'm <laughs> this is what it tells me to do in the book. But what's happened is invisibly the sakaya ditti self view has sort of kind of come in the back door and has taken over. It's like a virus on your computer. It's, you've been, you've been sort of uh, someone's taken over from a distance. You know that your your commu- your machine's been hacked. 
and that you've become a, 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 a I forget what they call it, a, a, um, a zombie. <laughs> your, 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 uh, your machine's been taken over by a, um, uh, a different operator. And so that then, that's, I feel it's, it's very important, and I feel Lumpur Sumedha is absolutely brilliant and, uh, and extraordinarily helpful in that emphasis in his teachings on getting familiar with those vibhavatana and bhavatana to get to know them. So then the mind gets alert to, oh, here's the, this is the, the feeling of me practicing, me trying to and do something now to become something to become enlightened in the future. Here's me trying to get rid of my problems. I've created a me who's the true uh, actual possessor of these problems, and a me that the creating the idea of a me who who won't have those problems in the future, and saying that's a good thing, <laughs> and unaware of the fact that the mind has created this me who's the owner of the problem and a me who's a possible me off in the future who doesn't have those problems, and. To step back from that, to to not feed that um, self view, that, but rather to to let the practice be guided by sati, you know, mindfulness and wisdom, clear comprehension. That that if if there's wisdom, then the effort to concentrate the mind, the effort to let go of defilements, the effort to develop insight will be will be motivated and, and guided by. By mindfulness and wisdom, rather than being co-opted by that uh, the hacker, <laughs> the self-view uh, yeah, hack troop. So I hope that makes uh, yeah, does that clarify it. The vibhavatana is uh, the attempt to suppress the self-view, claim that there is no no self-view. Well, it's, that's part of it. it. Can it can take all kinds of forms. Just that, as I said, just that feeling of just not wanting to bother, just wanting to switch off, to not feel. Well, most people drink alcohol for the vibhavatanha, just to stop feeling, to forget. To the uh, that kind of um, you know filling the mind with a different reality, so I can get away from my. I just want to stop being me. Can I just stop being me for a while? <laughs> Go to the bar and be you know be somebody else. And, uh, and at least that's why I used to drink. <laughs> Just to be someone else for a while. <coughs> yes? Excuse me, what's the difference between uh, conceit and self-view? Um, well, the uh, <coughs> conceit... Uh, there's, there's different kinds of conceit, but uh, the 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 two are uh, say uh, different levels of refinement. So self view sakayaditi, that's the very first of what are called the ten fetters. These are the obstacles to enlightenment. Uh, a fetter is like handcuffs or things that sort of bind tie you down. So the Buddha used this image of of being sort of imprisoned or chained up and shackled, fettered. To describe the things that obstruct enlightenment, so sakayaditi self-view, uh, the, uh, the, which is uh, the, the very first of those ten fetters, it can most easily be characterized as the belief: I am the body, I am the personality, I am my life story, I am a man, I am English, I am a Buddhist monk, you know, I am a Theravadan. 
there's, that's all, if you take that to be true, then that's Sakaya Ditti. Sat means true, Kaya means the body, the form, Ditti view, the view of the real body. I am a, I am a human, I'm a person. That's, that's uh, Sakaya Ditti. So conceit then is much, much more refined. <clears throat> so in the, the, the last few um, fetters that obstruct total enlightenment, then the, uh, of, the, of the ten fetters, the eighth one is uh, Asmi Mana. Uh, Asmi literally means I am. Mana is conceit, so the conceit of I am. So even if the, the identification with the body and the personality is let go of, there can be uh, a great deal of wisdom in the, the, and uh, understanding so that there's, that there's no delusion that you, know, you are a, <coughs> a person or you're a man or you're, you're uh, um, so many years old or you, or you uh, have this particular address or this life story. That might be completely clear that that's, that's all just um, empty and insubstantial. But there can be a very solid and <coughs> and uh, real feeling of I that's independent of those personal characteristics. So that's not associated with being female or male or old or young or human or anything, but just I, <laughs> I the experiencer, I the doer. And there's a very uh, there's a very uh, interesting little sutta um, with this elder called uh, uh, Venerable Kamaka. It's one of the is the I think it's the only instant, instance in the canon where somebody became an arahant listening to their own Dhamma talk. So as he was explaining this to his friends, he became an arahant as he was uh, uh, the Venerable Kamaka. As he was saying how uh, he had no delusions about identification with the body or the five khandhas, the personality, but still there was this feeling of I that seemed completely real and solid, even though it wasn't associated with any of the five khandhas. And, uh, and he said it's like a flower that you can smell the fragrance of the flower, but you can't really say where the fragrance is coming from. Is it coming from the the, the petals or the stamens or the pollen? Or you, you know, you, you can't tell. But the, but the fragrance is there, even though it's not apparently coming from any particular thing. It's the, the image he uses. And as he's explaining this to his friends, he he uh, you know, he breaks through that uh, asmimana, the conceit of I, identity. And becomes an arahant as he's giving that explanation. Well, they know that the, when they say "I," it's a, it's a convenient fiction. So that uh, it's also <coughs> when, when someone um, uh, challenged the Buddha. You know, well, the Buddha never said "I" about himself. He used the word the Tathagata, the thus thus come one or thus gone one. But he did use personal pronouns referring to other people, saying, you know, this monk or that person, he, she, they. And one time somebody challenged him on this and said, but, you know, you said all dhammas are not self. What are you doing using personal pronouns? <laughs> and then he makes the comment, uh, I, I can't remember exactly where this appears, but he makes the comment, like, you can always hear him saying, <clears throat> <Okay>. <laughs> yes, uh, Yes, indeed, all dhammas are not self, but the Tathagata uses the conventions of speech without any kind of delusion. So that uh, when he's saying, uh, I'm talking to this this person, and using uh, pronouns like she or he or they, uh, it's uh, using the conventions of speech and, and social uh, ordering, but without any 
delusion that there's a, a fixed, permanent, independent entity there. So that for for an arahant, then there's there's a recognition that when they say I, there's a kind of it's a sort of it's kind of a joke. You know? <laughs> well, we know what that's about. You know? So, but they they would still say I, or or sometimes you get you get people uh, who they always ref- that they, they would use language like this person, or or like the 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 um, the late supreme patriarch in Thailand. He would never use the. This is I understand people talking about. He he would never say I, uh, I feel or I'm doing. He would talk about what's happening here. He said, you know, here there is happiness. Like just talking about his own, or, or here there is, uh, here there is sadness. So rather than saying you know, I'm sad or I'm happy, or you know I'm going, or, or, or here there's a plan to go to Chiang Mai. So just as a convention of speech to help emphasize that. He just used that that way of articulating things. So it's a it's a question of degree. So a, a uh, conceit is is far more subtle. I mean, it's hard enough to, to break through self view, sakayaditi, but that's by no means the whole story. It's just the first of the ten fetters. Um, but uh, that. Um, uh, the the conceit of I, I, I of identity the, the Buddha says that is to be free of the conceit I am that is nibbana here and now in the Megiya Sutta is the the way he expresses it but also that that's the, the purpose of of insight meditation through the contemplation of of anicca of uncertainty of impermanence that leads to the development of the insight into into not self and then the the <coughs> The the uh, the development of the insight into not self then frees the heart from the the delusion the conceit of identity and says and that is nibbana here and now. Okay, so I'll read a few passages from uh, this. So Lopo Cha's uh, uh, passing away it was sixteenth of January. Uh, 1992, so 24 years ago now. It's turning into ancient history. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I thought I'd read a few passages that relate to Sati and Sampajanya and Panya. So this first passage is from a talk called Tucho Putila. And... Um, It starts off with him um, giving a, dis, uh, a, a, a simile about watching the mind as if you're uh, watching a, a lizard hiding in an. You're trying to catch a lizard, and the lizard has gone to hide in a termite mound. This is a very northeast Thai kind of a simile. <laughs> Probably none of us here have sat. Maybe one or two sat watching a lizard going in a, into a termite mound, but it's not what you find in Hertfordshire <laughs> or in northern Europe these days so he taught him to observe the sense objects to know the mind and to know the sense objects using the simile of a man catching a lizard hiding in a termite mound if the mound had six holes in it how would he catch it he would have to seal off five of the holes and leave just one open then he would have to simply watch and wait guarding that one hole when the lizard ran out he could catch it observing the mind is like this 
Closing off the eyes, ears, nose, tongue and body, we leave only the mind. To close off, in this instance, the senses means to restrain and compose them, observing only the mind. Meditation is like catching the lizard. We use sati to note the breath. Sati is the quality of recollection, as in asking yourself, what am I doing? Sampajanya is the awareness that now I am doing such and such. We observe the in and out breathing with sati and sampajanya. That's a very neat way of uh, phrasing it, I thought. that the Sati is uh, sort of bringing the attention to the present and then the uh, uh, with that questioning, what am I doing, what's going on? And then sampajanya is like, oh, this is what's happening. This is what is, is being done. This quality of recollection is something that arises from practice. It's not something that can be learned from books. Know the feelings that arise. The mind may be fairly inactive for a while, and then a feeling arises. Sati works in conjunction with these feelings, recollecting them. There is sati, the recollection that I will speak, I will go, I will sit, and so on. And then there is sampajanya, the awareness that now I'm walking, I'm lying down, I'm experiencing such and such a mood. With sati and sampajanya, we can know our minds in the present moment, and we will know how the mind reacts to sense impressions. That which is aware of the sense objects is called mind. Sense objects wander into the mind. For instance, there's a sound like the, like the electric drill here. It enters through the ear and travels inwards to the mind, which acknowledges that it is the sound of an electric drill. That which acknowledges the sound is called mind. Now this mind which acknowledges, uh, which acknowledges that sound is quite basic. It's just the average mind. Perhaps annoyance arises within the one who acknowledges. We must further train the one who acknowledges, quote-unquote, to become the one who knows, quote-unquote, in accordance with the truth. This is known as buddho. If we don't clearly know in accordance with the truth, then we get annoyed at the sound of peoples, cars, electric drills, and so on. This is just the ordinary untrained mind acknowledging the sound with annoyance. It knows in accordance with its preferences not in accordance with the truth. We must further train it to know with vision and insight, jnana dasana, the power of the refined mind, so that it knows the sound as simply sound. If we don't cling to sound, there is no annoyance. The sound arises and we simply note it. This is called truly knowing the arising of sense objects. If we develop the buddho, clearly realizing the sound as sound, then it doesn't annoy us. It arises according to conditions, it is not a being, an individual, a self, an us, or a them. It's just sound. The mind lets go. This knowing is called buddho, the knowledge that is clear and penetrating. With this knowledge, we can let the sound simply be sound. It doesn't disturb us unless we disturb it by thinking, I don't want to hear that sound, it's annoying. Suffering arises because of this thinking. Right here is the cause of suffering, that we don't know the truth of this matter, we haven't developed the buddho. We're not yet clear, not yet awake, not yet aware. This is the raw, untrained mind. This mind is not yet truly useful to us. So that uh, uh, term buddho he's using here, I would say that equates exactly with, with panya, or that quality uh, of wisdom. Buddho uh, literally means, uh, the, the word buddha mean, means to know, or to be, uh, to be awake, to be aware. So that buddho is not just the, the thinking of the word buddho, but it's in that very quality of awakened awareness itself. 
Also, you can use the word vijja uh, for, for knowing too. So this next passage is from a talk called Reading the Natural Mind, uh, called Insight Meditation. If you have faith, it doesn't matter whether you have studied theory or not. If our believing mind leads us to develop the practice, if it leads us to constantly develop energy and patience, then study doesn't matter. We have mindfulness as a foundation for our practice. We're mindful in all bodily postures, whether sitting, standing, walking or lying. And if there is mindfulness, there will be clear comprehension to accompany it. Mindfulness and clear comprehension, so sati and sampajanya, will arise together. They may arise so rapidly, however, that we can't tell them apart. But when there is mindfulness, there will also be clear comprehension. When our mind is firm and stable, mindfulness will arise quickly and easily, and this is also where we have wisdom. Sometimes, though, wisdom is insufficient or doesn't arise at the right time. There may be mindfulness and clear comprehension, but these alone are not enough to control the situation. Generally, if mindfulness and clear comprehension are a foundation of mind, then wisdom will, will be there to assist. However, we must constantly develop this wisdom through the practice of insight meditation. This means that whatever arises in the mind can be the object of mindfulness and clear comprehension. But we must see according to anicca, dukkha, anatta. Impermanence, anicca, is the basis. Dukkha refers to the quality of unsatisfactoriness, and anatta says that it's without individual entity. We see that it's simply a sensation that has arisen, that it has no self, no entity, and that it disappears of its own accord. Just that. Someone who is deluded, someone who doesn't have wisdom, will miss this occasion. They won't be able to use these things to their advantage. If wisdom is present, then mindfulness and clear comprehension will be right there with it. However, at this initial stage, the wisdom may not be perfectly clear. Thus, mindfulness and clear comprehension aren't able to catch every object, but wisdom comes to help. It can see what quality of mindfulness is there and what kind of sensation has arisen. Or, in its most general aspect, whatever mindfulness there is or whatever sensation there is, it's all Dhamma. The Buddha took the practice of insight meditation as his foundation. He saw that this mindfulness and clear comprehension are both uncertain and unstable. Anything that's unstable and which we want to have stable causes us to suffer. We want things to be according to our own desires, but we suffer because things aren't that way. This is the influence of an unclean mind, the influence of a mind which is lacking wisdom. So uh, as you can, you can tell, he's using the terms very, in a very uh, interrelated way. But um, as he's saying that the uh, sati and sampajanya mindfulness, clear comprehension, when it's not, it's not strong enough or it's not, it's not fully clear, it's that uh, active involvement of, of uh, the development of insight, the reflecting on anicca, dukkha, anatta, that can really strengthen that. So uh, w one simple practice or way of, of working with this that uh, I've used in the past is just to, to set a, an intention, just to say, okay, during today, uh, like in the morning sitting, morning meditation, during today, I will endeavor to see the quality of anicca in every experience, whether I, I call it inside or outside, uh, in my mind or in the world around me, whether I call it something beautiful, ugly, good or bad, pure or impure, a wholesome or unwholesome, whatever it is, whether it's a sound or a feeling or a thought or a mood or a, uh, something that I see, 
uh, I'll bring it to mind the quality of anicca. Look at the impermanent, the changing nature of that experience. Just as an exercise, just a, like a simple sort of task to set yourself. And uh, and it can be a, a, a very a very powerful and useful thing because it it, it highlights the amount of time that the the uh, attention is drawn into um, habitual judgment. So this is good, that's bad. This is inside, that's outside. And it's in a way it's reframing the way that the mind experiences each moment, and and it's boosting that quality of. Of, uh, of panya, the the wisdom element, and I say, oh well, yes, yeah, it's, it's a it's an ugly thought, but it's changing. <laughs> it's a, a beautiful cloud, but it's changing. It's a it's a, a, an obnoxious person, but they're changing. <laughs> That's a really you know, inspiring dhamma talk, but it's changing. So it's a a a, a way of reconsidering, reframing experience, and that um, and also that sense of uh, actively relating to the flow of experience. Uh, moment by moment, oh, this is something that's being known. It's a, a set of mental events. It's arising. It's taking shape. It's doing its thing. Whereas our instinct is, oh, it's six o'clock. I'm supposed to do this, or oh, it's half past ten. I should be doing that, or oh, here is this person. I, I know this person. Oh, that person. I don't know that person. <laughs> yeah, this. Uh, I like that person. I don't like that other person. The mind is is always getting caught into its its sort of daily activities, its list of things to do, and its judgments and. This is a simple exercise that can help us step back from that. So it's a very simple kind of practice to do, but very, very potent, very powerful in its own way. So a couple more small readings. Let's see what I mean. So uh, this little passage, uh, Ajahn Chah has been talking about different experiences in meditation and um, the, particularly the feeling of, of pity or rapture that can come from concentration. At this point our practice becomes somewhat special. We must have recollection and self-awareness and not lose ourselves. Know things for what they are. These are stages of meditation, the potential of the mind. Don't doubt anything with regard to the practice. Even if you sink into the earth or fly into the air or even die while sitting, don't doubt it. Whatever the qualities of mind are, just stay with the knowing. This is our foundation, to have sati, recollection, and sampajanya, self-awareness. Whether standing, walking, sitting or reclining, whatever arises, just leave it be. Don't cling to it. Whether it's like or dislike, happiness or suffering, doubt or certainty, contemplate with vichara, it's with, uh, uh, say with deliberate thought, Engage the results of those qualities. Don't try to label everything, just know it. See that all the things that arise in the mind are simply sensations. They're transient. They arise, exist and cease. That's all there is to them. They have no self or being. They are neither us nor them. None of them are worth clinging to. Okay, and then this is from a talk called Supports for Meditation. There must be both sati and sampajanya. Sati is recollection and sampajanya is self-awareness. Right now, you are clearly aware of the breath. This exercise of watching the breath helps sati and sampajanya develop together. They share the work. Having both sati and sampajanya is like having two workers to lift a heavy plank of wood. 
Suppose there are two people trying to lift some heavy planks, but the weight is so great they have to strain so hard that it's almost unendurable. Then another person, imbued with goodwill, sees them and rushes in to help. In the same way, when there is sati and sampajanya, then panya, wisdom, will arise at the same place to help out. Then all, of, all three of them support each other. With panya, there will be an understanding of sense objects. For instance, during the meditation, sense objects are experienced, which give rise to feelings and moods. You may start to think of a friend, but then panya should immediately counter that with it doesn't matter, or stop, or forget it. Or if there are thoughts about where you'll go tomorrow, then the response would be, I'm not interested, I don't want to concern myself with such things. Maybe you start thinking about other people, then you should think, nope, I don't want to get involved, just let go, or it's all uncertain and never a sure thing. This is how you should deal with things in meditation, recognizing them as not sure, not sure, and maintaining this kind of awareness. You must give up all the thinking, the inner dialogue and the doubting. Don't get caught up in these things during the meditation. In the end, all that will remain in the mind in its purest form are sati, sampajanya and panya. Whenever these things weaken, doubts will arise. But try to abandon those doubts immediately, leaving only sati, sampajanya and panya. Try to develop sati like this until it can be maintained at all times. Then you'll understand sati, sampajanya and samadhi thoroughly. Focusing the attention at this point, there will be sati, sampajanya, samadhi and panya together. Whether you are attracted to or repelled by external sense objects, you'll be able to tell yourself, it's not sure. Either way, they're just hindrances to be swept away until the mind is clean. All that should remain is sati, recollection, sampajanya, clear awareness, samadhi, the firm and unwavering mind, and panya, or consummate, consummate wisdom. For the time being, I'll say just this much on the subject of meditation. So that's a few of Lumpur Cha's uh, thoughts on that, that theme. And um, uh, hopefully that uh, makes things clearer for everyone. <laughs> but if there's any other questions or uh, aspects of that that people would like some more clarity on or things that... Uh, don't uh, don't seem uh, understandable and just speak up ask away it seems to me that some of the readings have uh, emphasized that wisdom will naturally arise um, when there's clear known and that some of them have said that that's not the case and before I came here this evening, I was I had a sense of um, what clear comprehension is that um, implies that it doesn't necessarily arise. Um, that one can have a very intuitive um, sense. One can even develop a very intuitive uh, sense of the environment and the experience and, and what's happening in the situation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that wisdom arises if the sense of wisdom is how one responds into the situation that takes it forward in the best way possible, or mm -hmm. a good mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't actually talked about what wisdom is, <laughs> assuming that it's something in that kind of thing. Um, so, 
I, I think I'm just saying that my sense is that wisdom doesn't necessarily um, arise, or that there are other things um, that are uh, influencing the situation. Well, it's a, it's a good point. I'd say that um, it it doesn't arise nat for many people. It doesn't arise naturally on, on its own, um, and that it's the active engagement of those uh, in a way the inquisitive aspect of mind. So you can say, like the wise reflection or investigation, that that the mind that, that sort of leans into the moment. Says, well, what's going on here? Or, or how is this working? What's my mind doing with this? That and Ajahn Chah had a mind that that kind of did that all the time. <laughs> so sometimes it, you know, the way he speaks can be that you know wisdom will arise because his mind was so prone to that that kind of curiosity, like well, what's going on here? How does this work? And and so his mind was very very keen and disposed in that direction. For most people, many other people, it's not that way, or not so strongly that that that. Uh, What's called uh, yoni so manasikara, that like wise reflection. It doesn't sort of automatically engage, and so that, in a sense, that, like I was saying, using that reflection or to ask yourself or to look at Anicca all the time, just to be consciously developing that sense of curiosity and investigation. Like, what's happening here? How is my mind handling this? Or, or what's what's the mood that's going on at the moment? And so, uh, I think probably. That expression of like leaning into the to the moment, being ready to pick things up, and uh, and not just drifting into a, a passive state, because oftentimes mindfulness can turn into a kind of uh, you almost sort of like be, become a sort of uh, a, a CCTV camera, this sort of recording data, like walking, 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 feeling, feeling, thinking, thinking, and the yeah, so sort of data is being registered. But it's almost the panya faculty is kind of being switched off. That that sort of investigation, um, because a thing. Well, I'm 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 being mindful. I'm doing the practice, and and that because of that engagement with just bringing attention, that reflective element can be sort of lost. So uh, I feel that it's the the that that very quality of of curiosity exploring investigating this asking those those questions of uh, what what am i what's being felt what's what's happening at the moment or uh, <clears throat> where you know what what's uh, the 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 emotional tone or, or what's what's on my mind or what's happening here just a readiness to ask that kind of question to, to pick things up and to explore that that engagement is in a way the entry point for for wisdom and then the quality of wisdom itself in a sense is the change of vision of like oh it's a i'm in an anxious mood or i'm in a, an inspired mood or my mind is is um, carrying around this thing that i'm calling a problem all right look at that <laughs> uh, and that that uh, oh look at that that the change of heart in a way is that that's the the understanding the the it's not a conceptual understanding but more a, a different way that the the experience of the present is is framed as a sort of shift of of view um, and then then from that shift of view then what what you were just describing about okay what what do I do with this or where do I go from here or how do I work with this that I say is a is part of a 
uh, of a, it's like an extension of that having the mind more attuned to the actuality of the present and seeing how things are working then <laughs> that can inform is there something to be done or is, is there something to say here or, or do I move forward or do I hold back or what's what's the appropriate way of, of well the best uh, way of working with the situation to the greatest benefit for myself or for others but I'd say that the, the essential aspect of that is not in a, in a way the the things that are chosen to do but the, the change of vision that is the real wisdom aspect of it that the seeing things in the in a, a different way that's a way that is is sort of non-personal and and in a way sort of a na- the, the the seeing things in terms of, of their nature as dhamma so part of the natural order that's sort of, oh it's like this and then from that clarity of vision then appropriate action arises does that make sense Not really, but I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. How's the word? Well, that's that's interesting. So, how how does it not make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, my my sense of um, clear comprehension includes um, a phrase, but I'm not absolutely wrong. But from what you said, about seeing things exactly as they are, seeing things as as they are. But you seem to um, be saying that the, there's a wisdom element of that that's separate um, to it, that's, that comes in before any movement in the mind um, to decide that decides about um, responding actively or responding by not responding. Well, the, the, I'd say that the terms are used quite flexibly, like, like in Lumpur Chah's description, there's, there's a lot of overlap there. Also, like the, you know, Lumpur Sumedha coined that phrase, intuitive wisdom, as his translation of Sati Sambhajanya. That, that, was, that was how he, he came up with that phrase, is to, to, be, to be referring to mindfulness and clear comprehension. So he's, he's very much got the wisdom element in it. Already, so it, you know he's probably using it as a shorthand for Sati Sampajanya Panya, you know, the whole bundle together. Um, uh, we could take the opportunity to ask him sometime. <laughs> but uh, I, I feel it, it's the it's 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 not the case that, we're, that there's a one model or one um, pattern that everyone has the same experiences of but just in speaking about it there at least for me there's this very definite sense of of um i, I can be aware of what's going on i can be sort of uh, choosing things to to do or to say in a particular moment and then there can so there can be a sort of sati sampajanya if you like or the clear comprehension is like a, a attunement but without there being a lot of wisdom there's still a sense of a me who's doing something to get somewhere and then there's a change of vision. I thought, oh, it's not me getting somewhere, it's just the body walking. It's not me trying to get a point across to Caroline. 
but there's just the Dhamma speaking itself. Oh, look at that. And then there, there's a, a t- there's a, like a tonal shift, there's a, a change of quality. Just like, and it's very interesting in in, in meditation where that you notice that bhavatana, like me trying to do something, me, or like just like with walking meditation, feeling of me walking from this end of the path to the other, and then oh, there's me doing the walking, and then the mind notices that, and then there's a just a slight shift. Of, oh, well then I can just there can be a letting go of the me who's the walker, and there's the walking just carrying on. And there's a there's a, a change of quality. So, so that's the, I would say that's the panya element is that. The, the different way that's how I use the word anyway and then that the different way that the moment is is received and known is that oh there's 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 the walking going on there's the talking going on but there's it's it's not tied up with trying to get some place or to get to a a, a result or me getting somewhere but it's just this I see just this is two minutes past seven now, so time to wrap things up. I'm just reminded of this. Uh, b- before we had the cloister here, um, this used to be an open, it was the car park really, <laughs> it was a monastery car park, it, was like, it used to be the school playground. And, and um, <clears throat> so when I lived here in the 1980s, I was, um, I was the monastery secretary and uh, often the work monk and, and so... Um, the uh, the courtyard out here was was known as the shark pool. So because so crossing over it was like uh, going across a pool full of sharks. You know, you're going to get <laughs> you're going to get fed on, and, and that uh, that somebody was spotting you. Go, oh, Ajinamro, just just a moment. <laughs> it wasn't just me who called it the shark pool. Other people did as well. So, so uh, I used to make a practice of. Of uh, of uh, whenever because it was all right in the middle of everything, so of course you were visible. So I would uh, make a, a a practice of because I could see myself trying to scurry across before I got spotted, <laughs> trying to get to the other side before one of the sharks got me. So I thought, well, no, this isn't very helpful. This is not very skillful. So I I developed a practice of of whenever I had to walk across the the, the courtyard, just to to be. Uh, to, to be not going anywhere, just to let the body walk. And, and there, one time there was this, this fellow who was staying here who was um, a gentleman of the road, a kind of a, a, sort of a freelance traveller through the byways of England and was staying here for a couple of days. Very kind of eccentric and outspoken fellow. And and it was it was quite striking because one time he, I was just walking across and he, and he just calls out, says, what are you doing thinking, what are you doing walking along uh, pretending that you don't exist? Well, well spotted. <laughs> like he could, he could see underneath. Yeah, you know, he could see that was this. Here's a, here's a bloke who's walking across the courtyard, trying not to be seen, <laughs> and he could see it. <laughs> so yeah, that's enough for this evening.